Well, I invite you to open your Bible with me to the book of Galatians. Uh, the book of Galatians, we are in Galatians chapter 5 this morning as we continue our walk through this book. We were going to finish this chapter this morning, and we're kind of going to do that, but kind of not. Uh, so this is going to be part one and part two. As I was looking at it, we've got two main themes going on here in this chapter. One is uh, the works of the flesh, and the other is the fruit of the Spirit. And I just thought, well, we're going to need a couple weeks. So we're going to take this week, uh, really focus, and so I apologize a little bit in advance on the, the challenge that each of us faces in facing, battling our flesh. And then next week, which is good for Mother's Day, an encouraging passage on the fruit of the Spirit. So if you have a copy of God's Word there and you are in Galatians chapter 5, we'll read just the first three verses of our passage now as we begin our time together. Galatians five sixteen, Paul writes, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. As we walk through this passage, both this week and next week, we'll see this central idea that we know the Spirit of God dwells in us when the fruit of the Spirit grows among us. We know that the Spirit of God lives in us and we see his fruit growing among us. Now, as we've walked through this book together, we have really switched targets. So the first few chapters are focused on the gospel foundation. In other words, what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? There are times where Paul defends his right to preach this gospel, his authority as an apostle. But here in chapter 5 and then into chapter 6, we're really focusing on the fruit of the gospel, which literally here he describes as the fruit of the Spirit. It's 107 years ago, June 28, 1914. A European nobleman and his wife were riding in a car and a Serbian national by the name of Gavrilo Princip approached them, shot them both at point-blank range, and killed him. The assassination of Archduke Ferdinand in 1914 sparked what initially became known as the Great War. Now we call it World War I. And in this war, European powers the United States aligned on different sides. On one side, you had the central powers. You have Germany, Turkey, Austria, Hungary, Bulgaria lined up against, on the other side, the allies, Britain, France, United States, Japan in that war, fighting against. What we have are these alignments. And what ended up happening as a result of this one incident set off this chain of events where for the next four to five years, all these nations are engaged in war against each other. Every day that someone woke up until 1918 when truce was declared, when peace was declared, these nations and the citizens of these nations awoke to find themselves at war. At the end of the Great War, some 16 million people had been killed. It changed life because warfare had changed. No one had really, no one really had noted how technology had allowed really mass killing in war. In this war, people lined up side against side and just mowed one another down. Well, we live in an era of allies and enemies. But I'm not talking about nation states. But every morning, each of us, as citizens of a heavenly kingdom, wakes up to a world at war. There are allies in this battle, and there are enemies in this battle. 
But the war we're focusing on today isn't the war out there, it's the war within us. Galatians 5, 16 through 18 identifies for us key players in this war, key elements of the spiritual battle that each one of us is engaged in, and it is a battle for our soul, the battle for our Christ-likeness, the battle of our sanctification. So as we walk through this, we'll see how Paul outlines this spiritual battle in verses 16 through 18. Like that day, some 107 years ago, there are enemies and allies today. And verse 16 introduces us to the two primary characters that he's going to talk about here. The flesh and the spirit. Walk by the spirit, he says, and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Verse 17, because he says these are opposed, they are at war with each other. Now it's been several weeks ago, but Galatians 3 verse 3 brings up a key question for Paul's argument throughout Galatians. Having begun by the Spirit, he says, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Well, it's a rhetorical question because the answer quite clearly is no. You don't begin by the power of the Spirit and then complete becoming like Christ in the power of your own strength. You see, our flesh is our enemy in sanctification. Now, one of the difficult parts about identifying the flesh as an enemy is that it's a part of us. It's inside every one of us. This enemy isn't external. It's the enemy within. Now, he has allies on the outside. The world, the flesh, the devil all unite to oppose us in our battle to become like Christ. But the flesh is like a friend that turns out to become an enemy. Uh, now, some of you, I don't know, my peers, younger people, I grew up on old movies. I also like kind of older novels. But I've read, also seen the movie Guns of Navarone. How many of you have ever seen that movie? It's a Gregory Peck. See, I knew some of the older folks. Yep, I knew it. It's a World War II novel that became a movie about a secret team of commanders who code to blow up guns that are guarding the rock of Gibraltar. But one of the most memorable moments in this story is when they find out there's a traitor in their midst. And the traitor is the most unlikely of people. It's this young girl, Anna. Seems like such a sweet girl, been tortured by the Nazis. But it turns out none of this is true. She made it up. She is a traitor in their midst. Find out that the people you thought you were engaged in battle with are actually your enemies is incredibly debilitating. To find out you have a friend that isn't actually your friend can create all kinds of insecurities, feelings of betrayal. People who turn their back on you when you aren't in the room, and each of us lives with this kind of enemy, and he lives inside us. The New Testament uses the flesh in a couple of ways. First, we see it sometimes used literally to talk about our literal flesh. Paul does this in Galatians. Galatians 2.20, he says, the life I now live in the flesh as in my physical body, I live by faith in the Son of God. But God's word also talks about flesh in a second way, a spiritual sense, and in this sense, it's not a good thing. It is someone allied against us. It's our spiritual nature apart from Christ. Paul sometimes calls this the old man, the old self, the old nature. We're born into this world spiritually dead. And apart from Christ, we have no hope. But even when we come to Christ, there is this remnant in each of us of this old self, this old person. 
Uh, you ever have this experience where you're like, okay, it's fine. I'm done with that kind of food, and I'm going to eat healthy food. So you go, you purge. You get all the bad food out of the house because you know if it's sitting there on the shelf calling your name, you can't say no. But if you had to go to the store to buy it, you might have a shot. So, so you get rid of all the old food. But you're two days, three days into this, and you hear someone calling your name, and it's those jalapeno potato chips. I mean, they are beckoning you. Joshua. They are calling you by name. That internal craving rises up within you, and you want the unhealthy food. That's our old self. Spiritually speaking, of course. There is this part of us that responds to that call. There's this remnant within each of us. We live in this world that theologians call the already, but not yet. In other words, we're already benefits of salvation, but we're not yet fully saved. There are things that we have received. We've been declared righteous. God has given us a new nature. But one day, God will completely and fully and finally redeem all creation, including our old nature. He will rescue us from the most deceitful, worst enemy we have. Your worst enemy and mine, ourselves. The most dangerous foe we face isn't out there. It lives in here. Your greatest enemy in your effort to become like Jesus isn't your imperfect mom or dad. It's not a friend. It's not a brother or sister. It's not a co-worker. It's not your spouse. It's you. It's hard to recognize, though, because this foe is your friend. But you are your own greatest enemy. As James 1.14 puts it, each person is drawn away by his own desires and sins but praise god in spite of the power of this enemy we don't fight alone we have an ally and paul tells us our ally in the fight against our own flesh is the spirit of god one of the best parts of being in heaven one day will be the presence of zero enemies you don't have to figure out who's your friend. On that day, we'll all be fully and finally redeemed. But until then, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. You see, our enemies are formidable. But this passage is full of hope because it's full of the Holy Spirit. Seven times Paul calls him by name in this paragraph. Our hope doesn't lie in our own strength. In fact, Paul identifies us as traitors to ourselves. Romans 7, the very things that we want to do, we don't do. And all the things we don't want to do, those are the things we find ourselves doing. But in this fight, the Spirit of God himself fights on our side. This Spirit is the third member of the eternal trinity. Eternal God, as the Father is God, as Jesus the Son is God, so the Spirit too is eternal God. Genesis 1 tells us that in creation, he was there active, hovering over the face of the waters. The Holy Spirit is truly God. Well, how does the Spirit come to us? 
John 3 is so helpful in understanding how God's Spirit comes to God's children. Perhaps the most famous verse in all of Scripture, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But what precedes that verse is the discussion of the presence of the Spirit and how the Spirit comes to God's children. And Jesus, as he's having this discussion there with Nicodemus, he says the Spirit comes to us like the wind comes to a tree. You can't touch it, but you can see what it does. The wind moves a tree as the Spirit moves among us. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you don't know where it is or where it goes. So it is, Jesus says, with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You see, to receive the Spirit of God, you must trust Jesus Christ. You cannot be in the Spirit if you are not in Christ. Later in John's Gospel, chapter 14, Jesus says, I'm going to leave. I'm going back to be with the Father. But I'm not really going to leave you alone. John 14, 16, I will ask the Father. He will give you another helper to be with you forever. He will never leave you, even the Spirit of truth. Verse 26, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. He will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Justification, the part where we come to faith in Christ, is the work of God alone in saving sinners. But sanctification, the process of becoming increasingly like Jesus Christ, is a cooperative work of God in us. It is the Spirit of God working in us. We fight our flesh in the power of the Spirit. But without this ally, you have no hope. You see, for the people of God to be continual recipients of the ministry of the Spirit, we must be devoted to the word of Christ. Our strategy, Paul says, is to walk by the Spirit. Flesh against Spirit, Spirit against flesh. How do we engage in battle? Verse 16, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The language here is the strongest possible language. Paul says, if you are walking by the Spirit, it is not, not possible to fulfill the desires of your flesh. It is impossible to be filled with the Spirit of God and to be filled with your own self. The key to fighting your flesh is to walk in the power of the Spirit of God. Well, what does it mean to walk by the Spirit? Well, the language here is ongoing. Be walking by the Spirit. He's like, let's go on a walk and keep walking with the Spirit. To walk with the Spirit is each moment of each day to submit to the Spirit's guidance in your life. And if you're doing this, if you're walking with the Spirit, you cannot be walking in your flesh. This all sounds very ethereal. How does the Spirit work? Ephesians 6, 17. Take up, Paul says, the sword of the Spirit. Do you remember what he said it is? Which is the Word of God. God's Spirit works by God's Word. 
If you want to submit to the Spirit each day, take up the sword and slay your enemy. Slay your enemy with this sword from the Spirit of God. And the beauty of it is that if you take up this sword, it slays the enemy within and without. The focus in Ephesians 6 is the enemy outside, standing, he says, against the schemes of the devil. So we prayerfully make disciples by putting the Word of God into every thread of our fabric because this is our weapon against the enemy. We equip adults and young people to engage in warfare against the enemy. The enemy outside and the enemy inside. We bring the power of the spirit of bear the power of the spirit to bear in our lives by bringing the word of God to bear in our life as a church. As we encounter Christ in the word, the living Christ in the living word. Paul tells them in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, we're changed from one degree of glory to the next. That's how we grow, as beholding the face of Christ in the word of God, one tiny degree by one tiny degree, looking more like Jesus. Well, this brings us to a question. How do we tell friend from foe? What are the signs of the enemy? What does our enemy look like and paul introduces us in verses 19 through 21 to the enemy pick up now if you would in galatians 5 verse 19 but if paul says you are led by the spirit sorry you are not under the law verse 19 now now the works of the flesh are evident sexual immorality impurity sensuality idolatry sorcery enmity strife jealousy fits of anger rivalries dissensions divisions envy drunkenness orgies and things like these I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I'm not sure that Paul is trying to be funny in verse 19, but I think he might be. He's being a little sarcastic here. He says, the works of the flesh are evident. In other words, he's saying, they're so obvious, I shouldn't even have to explain it. Now, it was 1961... At the time, the most famous football coach in America by the name of Vince Lombardi began training camp with the Green Bay Packers. And he began with a brilliant speech. Perhaps you know this speech. He began this inspiring talk by saying, Gentlemen, this is a football. Remarkable conclusion, I know. Now, no one said, but is it really? Come on, coach. Are you sure that's what you've got in your hand? Why did no one say that? Because it's self-evident that this is what? A football. Like, I don't have to tell you it's a football. You know it's a football. Now, my kids wanted me to bring a different football with Clemson on it, but I said, I'm not going to do that to some of the folks here. I'm just going to bring in the neutral football. But we all know what this is. It's a football. And in the same way, Paul holds up this list. He says, this is a football. These are the works of the flesh. They're not hard to figure out. They're self-evident. It's really obvious what these things are. And then he lists 15 things and closes by saying, and the things like these. So we're going to consider these things in three main categories. A moral category, a relational category, and a worship category. 
So first, let's look at this moral category, impure living. He lists several things, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, drunkenness, and orgies. Now, we live in a world where what's down is up and what's up is down or upside down. I heard a pastor say recently that the only thing in our world that you need to be saved from is the idea that you need to be saved from anything. Today, it seems ethically superior to express our individuality in any way we can. And it's real easy to pick up on big cultural sins. Homosexuality, transgenderism, LGBTQ+, and the like. God's word is clear on these things. It's always been clear. These things are not debatable, but... Too many Christians recoil at the idea of what those things mean for athletic teams, school bathrooms. These are real issues. But many believers, professing believers, recoil in shock while sitting on the couch next to their live-in boyfriend or girlfriend. God's word is clear about this, too. You see, sexual relationships are appropriate only within the lifelong bond of covenant marriage. That's it. Now look, some of us are sitting here knowing we can't undo our past. But the key to dealing with the past isn't to marinate our souls in the past. It is to soak our souls in the life-giving power of the gospel. You see, 1 John 1, 9 tells us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But the key is we must acknowledge it as sin and run to Christ in repentance and faith. That is how God forgives us. You see, 1 John 1 also says this, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. The hope of the power of the gospel lies in repentance and faith. Impure living, but Paul also addresses selfishly disruptive relationships enmity strife jealousy fits of anger rivalries dissensions divisions envy i said a moment ago that paul lists 15 sins here where more than half of them fall into this category and truthfully it seems that more than half of the problems in churches and in our church stem from this list Enmities are hatred that lies at the root of discord. In other words, there's a root within us of sin in our hearts, and it springs out, and it looks like this, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. There are all sorts of ways we can apply this, aren't there? Parents, kids, kids' parents, friends angry with friends, spouses angry with each other. And these are important applications. But, if you will, let's track through something here in our text together. Look again at verse 16. Paul says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now what this actually says is, y'all walk by the Spirit. And y'all won't gratify the desires of the flesh. Verse 18, but if y'all are led by the Spirit, y'all are not under the law. Verse 21, I warned y'all as I warned you before. Paul is addressing the church as a whole. So there is an aspect of this. It can't grow in us as a whole if it's not growing in us as individuals. But Paul isn't really primarily addressing individual Christians here. He's addressing churches. This is a problem with 
the church. Now, to some of you, this will come as a surprise, hopefully not to most of you. I love you. There is something that happens, and it's, it's hard to describe, but it's something that happens in the heart of a pastor toward a congregation that is a relationship. It's not like parent to child, but there is something like that that happens. We have genuine affection for the people that you serve. My heart hurts that our church is hurting and has been hurting for a long time. Like it genuinely does. I love you. I love our children. I love our older folks. I want the best for all of us. Not only do I love you, most of the time I like you. I like people. I like spending time with people. I love the ways that I can see God at work in the life of our church. And so I want to say this to people I like and love, gently, lovingly, but clearly, because this passage is the truth in love for Ashley River Baptist Church. It would be unwise not to pause here and ask why this sounds like a description of so much of life at Ashley River Baptist Church. Now, there has to be, in every relationship, husband-wife, parent-child, congregation, a place for wise and reasonable disagreement. That has to be, because it just is part of life. That's true in any relationship. We're not talking about that, because I think that's good and wholesome, but we're talking about a culture that habitually reacts in a fleshly way to spiritual leadership. If our reaction to any change, it could be any change, is strife, division, rivalry, dissension, we have to interact honestly with God's word. Now, as y'all know, I don't plan these things like a week or two before. Like, that's not how this works. This has been coming for months, just like the adoption sermon was coming for months. This is a temptation for every church and for every Christian. But some people have an extra measure of this spiritual gift. It's been going on for 40 years, at least. And the way it works, and the hard thing about it is there is a sincere, well-intentioned majority. People who really do want Christ to work here and work through us and work in us. But there is a poisonous underbelly that eats at the peace and unity of the church. Now, in the history of our church, it used to happen openly in public meetings. The last couple years, that open warfare has been less common. But it hasn't stopped the gossip, strife, slander, rivalry, dissension, division. These things happen no less destructively in homes, in Sunday school classes, over the phone, texts, and emails. Last Sunday's passage closed with these words. If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And some members have spent their week biting and devouring. And brothers and sisters, if we continue the way we're going, there's not going to be much left. We had staff members reaching out to people this week. One of those staff members offered to, someone mentioned that they were upset about some stuff and I'm happy to 
try to answer your questions, you know, interact with you about this? This person said, no. We're going to talk about it in our Sunday school class. I had a member of that same class sitting in my office this week saying, our class isn't a problem. And I said, yes, it is. We can do this forever. But we will die. I don't want to. I love you. I mean, the, the gospel opportunity here is unbelievable. But our mission is too great to keep doing this. It's like having a talk with your kids and you're like, you're destroying yourself. Like you're, you're hearing me as coming on, but like what I'm trying to say is like this behavior is self-destructive. We cannot keep engaging with one another this way. We can't engage with, with leadership this way, with, with each other this way. It can't be us and them. I don't view it this way, just to be clear. Like, it's not for the pastor, against the pastor. It's just like, are we going to walk by the Spirit or are we going to walk in the desires of our flesh? It's like being in an airplane that's plunging toward the earth and everyone's arguing about who's going to fly the plane. Well, you can argue till you crash or we can fly the plane. It's time to fly the plane. Now, I've got to say that one of the difficulties, is, I hate this, is addressing a large group of people means there are people, a lot of people, who don't live life this way. And I don't want the word to hit where it's not aiming. I'm not trying to burden the conscience of people who are sincerely trying to follow Christ. That's one of the difficulties is that some people, often the people you don't want to hear are listening to the people that you wish would, you know, they're like, I hope so-and-so heard that. But as a church culture, we have a serious problem. And some people here need to repent of specific sins to specific people and turn from that sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But Paul warns in verse 21, I warn you as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's not ultimately about what happens at Ashley River Baptist Church. It is about what will happen with your soul. Because each of these sins is ultimately a worship problem. Paul next addresses godless worship, idolatry, and sorcery. Now, sorcery is an attempt to use magic to twist God-ordained circumstances to bring about what we want. It's a failure to depend on the Lord and instead try to manipulate the world, the created world, to get what I want. And like other sin, sorcery is rooted in idolatry. Idolatry is elevating anything over God. It's allowing other things to take precedence. It could be sin, but it could be good things. I mean, our hearts are so good at this, so good at producing idols that we're really efficient at this. To want anything more than we want God himself is idolatry. Which ironically means that there is a common form of salvation that can be idolatry. So imagine 
that you want to be free of the penalty of your sin. No one wants to go to hell. But you don't want to embrace God for who he is and all that he is. You see, to pray a prayer but not bow in submission to God and his word is to bow at the idol of our own self-preservation, not at gospel true salvation. True salvation is an acknowledgement that we don't deserve to be saved. But we can be by trusting Christ. So we know our enemy, he lives within us. There must be some good news here. What are the evidence of God's grace at work in our lives by the power of the Spirit? Let's read verses 22 to 26. But the fruit of the Spirit, Paul says, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Galatians 3 verse 2 tells us how we receive the Spirit. Paul says we receive the Spirit by hearing with faith. Then Galatians 5 tells us that the work of the Spirit works its way out in our lives by these fruits. These look vastly different than the flesh. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The meditation on these things is so rich. That's why we're not going to just skip through it today. We're going to spend our time next week on this rich, ripe fruit. But as we close today, I'd like to ask a question. Why, for some, does the fruit of the Spirit seem so absent and why is strife and dissension so present? So brought with me a couple other things in my bag here. Also brought some gloves. These are just work gloves, but in case anyone shakes my hand afterward, I don't want to gross you out. Um, but the question is, we dig into the bag of our lives, some of us reach in and we pull out fruit. Doesn't mean we don't ever swing and miss, but if you look at the testimony of some believers in some churches, they're pulling out fruit. And the question is, for some of us, why is it that we're not pulling out fruit? Because some of us, pull out the works of the flesh. Well, why is that? There's no fruit in here. The only thing that can come out is the works of the flesh. Because what does what come out, comes out tell us? It tells us what's 
inside. And Jesus said it this way, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The heart's like, the, the mouth is like a dipstick to the heart. Tells you if the oil's good or bad. Now some of us struggle to grow in Christ because life in a fallen world is hard. It is hard. And so sadly for all of us, sometimes you reach in and that old flesh comes out. I wish it weren't true. True of me this morning. I had to apologize or repent before I came to church. My wife. Because sometimes it comes out. Our enemies are formidable. Every Christian lives in this in-between. We're already saved, but we're still being saved. We've received salvation, but we aren't there yet. So we humbly live our lives according to God's word. We have to live in repentance and faith. If you don't ever find yourself repenting, you aren't living in faith. This is the gospel lived out. We are sinners on a lifelong journey of being saved. A journey of repentance and faith. Now perhaps if you're new here, you don't often walk into church, you think, well, the church is a resort where all the spiritually beautiful people get together and hang out. But it ain't. It's a rehab center for spiritually sick people. It's people who need therapy. It's people who need healing. It's people who need the word of God brought to bear in our lives. It's people who need the gospel of grace every day. It's why Paul said, I am the chief of sinners. We need the word. We need community. We need worship. Because they are medicine for sick souls. But some of us don't have fruit because we don't have the spirit. Some of us need to be saved. Some of us have become Baptist, but have never become truly followers of Jesus. Now, we're Baptist by conviction. We, we don't apologize for that because we are seeking to model what we believe is lived out in the word of God. But friend, being Baptist won't save you. Some Baptist churches have accepted a Baptist culture in place of the life-giving gospel. The gospel is the good news that Jesus saves sinners. Any sinner. No matter how bad, no matter how secret, no matter how desperate, any sinner. The gospel is the grace of God poured out on us. Goodness. We can never deserve. Mercy. Instead of judgment. Grace. Instead of wrath. Love. Instead of condemnation. Glory in place of our shame. Eternal community. Instead of eternal separation you see the good news of the gospel is like a seed that plants itself deep in our hearts it can do it in a four or five year old child or a 94 year old man but when it plants its seed there it's like a seed that grows and it seeps out into every pore of our lives and so suddenly gospel fruit is just oozing out from the people of God. 
and then you put all those people together and you have scads of fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Someone pricks us and the love of God comes flowing out. Oh, friend, won't you turn from your sin and receive this good news? There is no better place of belonging than belonging to Christ Jesus by faith. Let's take a moment now, respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally, and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now.